0: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, once again, what a joy to be a part of this kingdom conference in which we celebrate with the nations, and we, we, we join together as brothers and sisters in Christ together under Christ, as this passage talks about so beautifully. Years ago, and probably for a decade, my family lived in the city of Machakos, Kenya. My kids love Machakos. They grew up collecting chameleons and climbing trees and running around our campus. Uh, Machakos is about 50 miles away from the, the city of Nairobi and we would travel to Nairobi maybe once or twice uh, a month in order to get supplies that we couldn't get in our own city. Now to get from Machakos to Nairobi, one has to drive these 50 miles past countless semis, heading inland from the port of Mombasa and then navigate Nairobi's traffic flows, roundabout side lanes, especially when there's a traffic jam, flooded roads after the rains, random police checks, public vehicle strikes, accidents, broken down cars, and other ex- unexpected happenings. This was everyday life, traveling in Nairobi. One day I was talking to this young Nairobiite woman who had grown up in the city, We were exchanging pleasantries, and then maybe in a little bit of a playful way, I said to her, how do you do it? How do you manage all the chaos, the the disorder of Nairobi? And she responded with one of the best cultural statements I've ever heard. She said, with a big smile on her face, I love the order within the seeming disorder. And this is a beautiful statement because we all live in ordered worlds. They're ordered according to certain cultural conventions. When I asked this young woman about living in Nairobi, the order she referred to was one that she had learned intuitively from growing up there. She knew how to get vehicles, what to do when the unexpected things happen, who to talk to when there was a problem. Her body had acquired certain rhythms. Now when I entered into the same space, I only saw and especially felt disorder. My actions weren't in step with the rhythms around me, and hence I interpreted things as I had experienced them, which felt a lot like disorder. Now let me say that when our international students come to America, they also are interpreting things as disorder. And so this is a natural part of how we live in our worlds. And I share this story because even as the public realm is made up of different narratives that I talked about yesterday, each of those narratives possesses its own order to it. Now some of this is innocuous enough and it's actually beautiful because it's part of being human, right? Cultural diversity adds variety and zest to life because we see things differently. We order life differently. It gives us a different hermeneutic in which we look at things. And I often joke with people that I have the gift of being awkward in all cultures around the world. Now, I I joke, but it's actually something that I have done in many cultures because I travel a lot. And the moment that you, that you step outside of your own culture, you are stepping out of the natural rhythms, the order of the way that you operate. And sometimes it feels a bit like you are stumbling around in the dark. And there actually is a beautiful thing. I, I, I actually own that and, and, and it actually is fun in a certain way, because you actually learn from other people and you, it, 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 you rely on them and you actually are able to laugh at your own foibles. And it keeps us humble. We aren't the only ones who order our worlds. We can learn a lot from other people. Even as ecological systems thrive on diversity, God has gifted human cultures with diversity for the fruitfulness of all, and isn't that what we're trying to celebrate this week? Now, of course, I have to mention this, that there is a sinister sinister side to ordering things. Some groups want to order things for other groups. This summer, I read Ronald Takaki's book, A Different Mirror, which is both a beautiful and a deeply troubling story or history of multicultural America. And uh, Takaki helps us to see that the history of our nation can be told around different groups coming to our country and establishing certain orders for other groups. Of course, this has led to horrific racism that is still with us today. We're constantly gardening the sanctity of our groups, defining our group around good and noble characteristics, and other groups around bad and ignoble characteristics. We use the language of purity to define ourselves. We use the language of danger to define other groups. So as we lean into public witness, it means knowing when to affirm and celebrate and call out and rejoice and learn from the good of other people, when to challenge idolatries, and knowing how to do so, when to reorient cultural systems, how to change meanings and so forth. It's actually, it's a a wonderful complex reality and it's a beautiful reality. Now, what I wanna do today is I wanna try and focus upon three practical ways that we can do this. And the first thing is that we cannot witness to something that we don't understand. And thus, as we enter in deeper into the narrative of the Missio Dei that we talked about yesterday, and nothing that I'm saying today should take away from that reality, we also need to enter deeper into the study of human cultures, and we need the two held together. One of the first passages of scripture that I uh, that I read and I learned as a young teenager when trying to make my faith my own was 1 Timothy 4.16. And I'm going to quote it from, the, past, from the, the version that I learned it. It said, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. I quote it that way because that would actually propel me into my own education career in which I went on an undergraduate to study psychology and Bible. I got two master's degrees later, one in theology and the other in missiology. And my PhD in theology is actually an integrative theology of theology and sociology. So we talked yesterday about God's biblical narrative, but without connecting it to our lives and not just our atomistic, internal, spiritual selves, but our social, public, and embodied lives, we run great risks. Please hear this carefully. Sometimes, erroneously, we all think, well, I know culture because I've grown up in it. Because I'm immersed in it, we think we know culture. But this assumption actually leads to grave dangers of ethnocentrism, since we can easily assume that our configuration or our ordering of reality is the basis upon which other people should be judged. And we are all guilty of that at some level. You see, public life is not out there, it's not on a table, it's not always just empirical that we can wrap our hands around and we can see, but it lies within us in the form of a narrative that we are habituated into. It's a narrative that is daily practiced by our bodies, but not always seen. It lies within us as a social imaginary fed by ideological beliefs and reinforced by group um, formation. And it's sourced by spiritual powers. We aren't always aware of our own culture, and that's what makes it so powerful. Invisible things often have the greatest power and influence in our lives, And, and part of studying culture is actually coming to see our own culture. And that's actually sometimes the greatest challenge for us because it's so deeply embedded in us. It's a narrative that we've grown up in. It's something that's so hard for us to see. One of the joys of interacting with people from diverse backgrounds is it actually doesn't just help us to see and appreciate them, but it actually helps us to see and appreciate ourselves. Human culture is a complex gift to us and to the world But without studying that gift, we can easily make it a liability or worse yet, a weapon used against others. So by not studying culture, we run some great risks. We run the risk of separating our lives from our doctrine, which leads to what we call hypocrisy and Millennials and Generation Z are leaving the church in in North America, and one of the reasons they're leaving the church is because of hypocrisy. Another danger is letting our lives interpret Scripture uncritically, which we call eisegesis. Another danger, and this is a very real one, is that we use Scripture to address our spiritual lives, but not letting it touch the deeper material and social and political and economic influences within our lives and we could actually call this a form of neo-Gnosticism. Another danger is we use our own cultural lenses, our own hermeneutic, heavily influenced by our own culture to interpret scripture for other people, which we could actually call imperialism. Do you see the dangers that that it's not just the study of scripture that we need, but we need to study culture and we need to actually develop linkages between disciplines. We have marvelous disciplines in our academic institution, but you need to actually live at the in-between space connecting these things together. We can't just study public life without studying theology. We can't just study theology without understanding public life and understanding that the two are interrelated or interconnected. We don't have to choose between studying the Bible or studying culture. God never asks us to decide between him and our own humanity. We need them both, and we need to connect them together. So that's our first point. The second point is, that is, is a glorious one. And this is that public witness. To actually really do public witness in our world, we need more and more and more of the resources of diverse brothers and sisters from around the world into a new humanity. We spoke yesterday about how God is moving us from particularity to universality, but without ever leaving particularity behind and actually drawing it into a thicker form of humanity. Yet, lest we equate the majority culture's particularities as universality, which is easy for us to do, we need to intentionally suspend our interpretations. We need to listen to other people. We need humility, we need wonder, and wonder opens up spaces within ourselves for actually us to receive from other people. Years ago, I was down in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I was meeting with some people who would become dear friends of mine. We were at the Methodist Seminary in Sao Paulo, and we were talking about a possible partnership between Asbury and uh, the the Methodist Seminary in in Sao Paulo. And the Dean, Paulo Garcia, who's become a really good friend of mine, he turned to me early in our conversation, and he said these words to me, we don't need Asbury. (laughs) No, I thought we were having a discussion about a partnership, and I was a little little stunned by that statement. And, And he went on to explain, and he was absolutely right, they are a wonderful institution. They have great faculty, they have wonderful students, they have incredible resources, they are a thriving institution. And then he turned to me with a little twinkle in his eye, and he said these words, But we need Asbury because we need different eyes to see together. Isn't that a powerful statement? We need different eyes to see together. You see, the reason that we read authors like Esau McCulley's Reading While Black or Ruth Padilla DeBor's books on Integral Mission or Vinoth Ramachandra's Reflections on the Incarnation or Beth Felker-Jones' work on Gender and Embodiment is that we need different eyes to see together. The reason that we bring global scholars to Asbury's Camp From around the world to do research and to live with us in community. And the reason that we actually form partnerships with institutions all around the world is that we need different eyes to see together. The reason that we eat and study and live and rejoice and weep in community, and especially with diverse students and our Uh, our our, our, um, brothers and sisters of color is that we desperately need different eyes to see together. And the reason that we pray and we cry and we lament, the reason that we feel the pain of others, such as what's happening in Myanmar, the reason that we open up intimate spaces within us to feel the plight of what's happening in northern Nigeria or the racism and the political divides in our own country is that we need different eyes to see together and I hope you understand when I say eyes I'm not just talking about the eyes I'm talking about the full person I'm talking about the emotions I'm talking about the bodies we desperately need each other Richard Baucom says it well he says the goal is not an abstract universal but the gathering of all particulars into one kingdom under God praise the Lord and we witness out of this shared humanity. We see that in Jesus's high priestly prayer where he says that they might be one as we are one so that the entire world would what? No, it's out of this forming ourselves and opening up spaces and learning from each other that is so important to what God is accomplishing in this world as a means of witness. For centuries, please hear these words, and I'm trying to say them as gentle as I can. For centuries, we in the West have largely determined the theological agenda for people all around the world. But hear the words of that great African theologian, John Mbiti, where he turns to us as brothers and sisters in Christ and he asks us these words. He says, we have eaten theology with you. Will you now eat theology with us? We need different eyes to see together. And let me, ask, let me finish with one last point, and this is another glorious one, and I'm trying to end on a really positive, this notion of hope, and that is that God has given us the main means and instrument by which we are to witness to the public realm, and that, are, that is local congregations. What Leslie Newbegin calls the hermeneutic of the gospel, gospel, or the basic unit of a new society. And you know, the Apostle Paul, he used this word church or ekklesia, and he was really drawing from both Hebrew and Greek connotations of a local public gathering to describe who we are and where we should be in this world. The early church was to be Israel-expanded and gathered locally as a sociopolitical fellowship under Christ Jesus you know, in our village, I shared with you yesterday, we were planting a church, and in our village, there were a small number of people that became Christians. And they would gather every single day. In fact, one of the things that we actually learn in the study of world Christianity is wherever there's a threat against the church, there is more, there are, we see more frequent gathering of the body of Jesus Christ. So then the question is, in the West, do we not perceive any threat, which is why we gather so irregularly? Or maybe we think it's easier to make our nation Christian than to gather more frequently and live counterculturally to the prevailing winds of public culture. God has sent local congregations to be agents of witness in this world. And as somebody who's spent the last two decades studying local congregations, I've actually more hopeful of the local congregation than ever before in my life, and I have gone through periods of cynicism. And yet, there's a beauty, there's actually a complexity to the nature of local congregations. We give far too much power to political leaders, thinking that they're going to change society. Our knee-jerk reaction is to change the world through electing the right individual. However, as we saw yesterday, our problems of public life are thick and social in nature, and God has gifted us with a means of witness that is thick and social, and that are that's local congregations. So local congregations are shaped by the biblical narrative, but not just in the form of cognition, but through socially embodied ways, such as what we do in liturgy and worship and embodied practices like the sacraments in which we're going to participate today in the Eucharist. The local congregations have the power of the forgiveness of sins. They have the power of hospitality and reconciliation across divides by which the cross of Jesus Christ destroys those walls of barrier and he makes those two become one in Jesus Christ. James K.A. Smith describes how these practices are done in a local congregation and he uses the language of a habitus. And a habitus is a complex of inclinations and dispositions that make us lean into the world with a habituated momentum in certain directions. As somebody who has studied churches all around the world, it's wonderful to see the incredible diversity. Again, I use this word thickness. The incredible thickness of local congregations in places in Latin America in Africa and all throughout Asia. And through song and dance, through prayer, through embodiment, through crying out in tears, through lament, and through unbelievable joy, what we're seeing in these congregations is that they're actually becoming a new people. In our gathering we re- reconfigure money and power and social belonging, and interactions between race and gender. We practice the forgiveness of sins, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. We hope amidst suffering, we bear each other's burdens, and in the process, we become a new politic, a new law, a new social order, a new form of peace and justice, a new economics, a new form of witness inserted in the world. Do you know one of the best things that we can do to witness to the public realm is to gather, and to praise Christ as king and actually to open up spaces within us by which Christ's kingship would now speak into the idolatries, the ideologies, the ways that we separate from each other. And if I could put in a commercial, I think that multi-ethnic, multi-racial, socioeconomic churches do it really well because they're forced into doing it. And as we gather, here's the beautiful thing, and this is where we come to a marvelous missional ecclesiology. We don't just gather, but we scatter. And it's not just the pastors, it's not just The missionaries, it's the entire body as we become this new social entity. We are then sent out into the fullness of our world, into our families, into our jobs, into our neighborhoods, and into third places in our world like sports and parks and coffee shops. Local congregations are the hermeneutic of the gospel in the fullness of life, and we need to send our congregations out. We actually need to rethink our ecclesiology around the fact that we do not just exist for ourselves, but we exist for our, church, uh, our communities. We exist for our, soci- our, our cities. We are to be a blessing wherever God sends us. Well, let's finish by coming back to that marvelous passage of scripture that was read to us. Paul is narrating with just profound imagery Christ's lordship over all of life. And he talks about Christ's kingship is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not in the only in the present age, but also and especially in the age that is to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over all things. So do you see Christ is now moving over the entire cosmos. He's moving over all of the spaces and pronouncing kingship over all these spaces. He's showing us a new way of being human. He's planting signposts to his mission, and he's doing it through the church. Listen. Listen the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Isn't that glorious? That is who we are as the church, not just gathered, but as scattered. And we see, and we saw in in Ephesians 3.10, a special role for the church so that now through the church, listen to these words, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known where? to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly realms. Now this is either the most spiritualized verse in the West or the most neglected verse in the West because the the church in Ephesus understood that the language of rulers and authorities was not just something esoteric up in the sky but was actually embedded in economic and political realities, the demonic, if we can be so crass as to say that, is not just up there, but it's actually in the warp and woof of public culture. And it is the church that is to make known the manifold wisdom of God in all places in this world. We cannot retreat from the public realm because the public realm is actually claiming our allegiance. It's actually defining our lives for us, but we are sent out as witnesses to proclaim and to live and to embody Christ's kingship over all this world. We have to do it by watching our life and our doctrine closely. We need to do it by gathering and opening up spaces within ourselves whereby all of the different voices and all of the beauty of the body of Jesus Christ can actually come in and to give us new eyes to see together. And we do it through gathering. We do it through the Eucharist. And by participating together, we say, God, I am opening up spaces in my life where I have not allowed you to come in and I want you to come in. And then we scatter. We scatter out into our communities and we proclaim and we live and we weep and we rejoice and we be the people of God. The church as public witness. Let me conclude. I, I concluded yesterday by a quote by Leslie Newbegin. I would much rather Leslie Newbegin have the last word rather than me. Hear these words it will only be by the, the movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present known and experienced and from which men and women go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society.